Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Folklore Scotland podcast. Every two weeks we're going to be dropping into your preferred podcasting host to fill your ears with the best of Scottish folklore. Folklore Scotland is a charity that was established in order to try and protect and preserve Scottish folklore. We do this in a series of different ways, primarily through our digital outlets. Our newest exploit is this podcast that we're hoping will allow our contributors to shed some more light on their areas of interest uh, to do with Scottish folklore and traditions and customs uh, and allow us to build a bit of conversation around it and hopefully at the same time giving you all some information about Scottish folklore. Myself and David will be joined by two of our wonderful contributors Lindley and Mila to chat a bit about the winter solstice since that's when we're releasing this episode. We also want to give a big shout out to Rasheen, who has been one of our research monkeys behind the scenes on this episode. So thank you for all of your help, Rasheen. Before we kick off, we'll do some official introductions. I'm David and I'm one of Folklore Scotland's co-founders. I'm Rebecca and I'm the other co-founder of Folklore Scotland. I'm Mila, I'm a volunteer at Folklore Scotland. Hi, I'm Lindley and I'm a contributor here at Folklore Scotland. So before we get into the folklore stuff, we thought we would give you a very brief description of what the winter solstice actually is. The winter solstice is midwinter and it comes from the Latin sol meaning sun and sustere meaning to stand still. There is a solstice at both midwinter and midsummer and it's the day the night is either at its shortest or its longest, giving the impression that the sun has stilled in the sky. The winter solstice happens when one of the earth poles has its maximum tilt away from the sun giving the fewest hours of sunlight. It's the time and date at which the sun reaches its minimum declination and usually happens around the 21st of December. We're going to be chatting about a few things from plant lore to stone circles, so without further ado, David, take it away. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about stone circles, one of the kind of stereotype tropes of kind of Druidic culture and kind of our modern perception of like pagan celebration. But their kind of link with the various solstices aren't the summer and the, the winter solstice aren't quite as clear cut as most people isn't, because most stone circles have their own kind of unique lineup points with various different things. So one of the prominent ones I'm going to discuss a little bit is uh, the Standing Stones of Kalanish which is uh, probably the most famous set of standing stones in Scotland. It's based on the Isle of Lewis, and me and Rebecca went there for a little visit in January this year. Um, and it was it was really impressive place. Uh, the stones were a lot bigger than I thought from the pictures, <laughs> um, and a lot bigger than all of the mainland stone, st- um, standing stones I've ever been to. So it was quite a, a nice event, other than the fact that it's so windy, because it's a very high up set of stones that we were being blown sideways off of the hill. <laughs> but as for uh, Kalanish, it's thought to be more to do with the uh, lunar calendar than the idea of the winter and summer solstices. Um, it does also have a line that we line up with the uh, Easter equinox, so Eastern modern days, um, and derived from the uh, spring equinox. But people still go to that one to celebrate the various solstices just due to the, the tie-in of the idea that these stone circles are, are something that's to do with the solstice and that has something to do with the, the druidic and pagan beliefs. So the standing stones are about 5,000 years old in Kalanish. They're one of the oldest sets of standing stones in uh, mainland, well, in Scotland. Um, and they are 
probably one of the most explored and researched as well as being such prominent objects in the landscape. But uh, that is the kind of a little bit about the history of the most famous arguably in Scotland stone circle. Um, on the folklore side, there's a little bit more interesting. Um, they actually do have a little tie-in a bit with the idea of the solstice there. Not so much in the winter solstice now, but in legend there's thought to be uh, this concept of the shining one is how they're referred to in the legends of this uh, shining being walking down the uh, Northern Avenue, which is part of the stone circles of Kalanish because it's referred to as the sandstones of Kalanish because it's not just a stone circle. It has the stone circle in the centre, but it has a main avenue leading up north. It has an east and a west uh, row of stone, as well as a small uh, row of stones going up uh, south from that as well, which may at some point have been an avenue. They're not quite entirely sure on that because there's one stone that seems to indicate it was, uh, but there's also rumours that that stone was put there by the Victorians after a drunken man had knocked it over from where it had originally been. <laughs> so. We're not quite sure, and it's it's quite interesting when you're looking at sandstones, knowing how much that research has been put in it, how very little there actually is known about the certainties, and it's because there wasn't the written history of what happened when these were made and why they were made. Um, within the folklore of it, we also have the, the story of the white cow of Lewis, which is one that we've got on our website, and Lindley did a lovely illustration of with Kalanish sitting in the background. I think they're probably one of my favourite sets of standing stones in Scotland, but a bit more moving on to the idea of the winter solstice and standing stones. Um, at Stonehenge down in England, it's, uh, people celebrate it and watch it rise up uh, over one of the stones there, and it's viewed because of that, largely because of that, to be a universal thing. Uh, and there are uh, certain ones of the standing stones are designated to have positions that are linked with that. Um, a lot more often you do find the Scotland ones linked with the equinox because it's seen as the start of the planting season and so that was a lot more uh, useful for farmers in Neolithic times in Scotland than perhaps knowing when it's about to get very cold. Although that could be handy too for knowing when to bring in the cattle and things to your barns and such like. So one of these standing stones I'll be moving down to Dumfries and Galway now in my neck of the woods because there's quite a lot down there. It's mainly a lot of people view it as a kind of highland and island thing but there's a, a, a prolific amount of, of stone circles down in the southwest of Scotland. And I think within one of the big ones near where I live, I think there's another two or three within a five mile radius. So it's, it's a very common thing in the area. Uh, one of the very famous ones is the Tor House Stone Circle. And it's in Wigtown area in Dumfries and Galloway. And it's more funnily known occasionally as King Galvis's tomb. Um, Unlike a lot of the better known stone circles, it's not quite as well recorded or excavated, but it is uh, equally as, I think, impressive. It's not the huge big structure as Kalanish and, uh, and Stonehenge and things are, but I think it, it, it has a certain kind of poignancy about it when you're there, just in that it so, was obviously so intrinsic to the local landscape at the time. And the concept has been linked with uh, King Galdus, who was a legendary king of Scotland, um, it's quite an impressive thing as well. It's comprised of 19 uh, granite boulders, which is a, a common rock to be used in the area. Um, there is a lot of uh, granite-based quarries based about there. It's Most of the ones in the southwest side are made of granite or of windstone. Two very hard, rugged uh, wearing stones, which is testament to why they're still there today and haven't been eroded down. 
and within the centre there are three positions aligned northeast to southeast. Uh, it's not known whether these were in the original design. It does quite conveniently line up with certain events, but um, a lot of the time, and as was the case in the previous major stone circle, Kalanish, things were added in the middle. So in Kalanish, there's an added cairn in the centre, and in this one, it's proposed that the three stones in the centre are linked with King Galdus, and that that is where his final resting place is. The links with that are a little bit more dubious in history. Um, he was thought to be, well, the King Galdus was thought to be King Corbred II, um, who was a king up in Scotland. Around about 76 AD was the place that uh, um, was kind of a, close to the end of his rule. They're not quite sure entirely. They reckon somewhere between kind of 56 and 128 AD was when he was in, but they put his death at 76 AD specifically because he was fighting against the Romans at the time. Uh, this is one of the stone circles that can be used at the winter solstice in order to um, mark the date of it. The sun rises and sets over one of the stones in the circles. I haven't actually been to it myself, and online it doesn't actually say which one exactly, but uh, I have it on authority from a picture of the plaque at the site that it rises over one of the stones. The third and final stone circle I wanted to talk about a little bit is one that is just down from where I live. I live in a village called Shawhead back home. Um, and this one is about two miles from the local parish church. It's one that's made from stone from around about the site of the local parish church, which I found quite interesting. There's so many links between the original ideas of the kind of the, the Neolithic time and the pagan people of Scotland and then that developing, developing into Christianity. And that's reflected in the name as well of the circle because it's known now as the 12 Apostles Stones, even though there's 11 of them. Um, but <laughs> it was thought that there was a 12th one, um, I think it was prior to Victorian times and recordings of a 12th one, but the, the rumors that it was removed and the idea that it was uh, the, the unfaithful disciple, the Judas of the group, and it was subsequently removed symbolically. Um, whether it was that or the fact that they decided to plant a hedge through the middle of it, <laughs> we're not quite sure. Um, but it's interestingly the largest stone circles in circle in mainland Scotland, and the seventh largest, I think, it is in Scotland. Um, it doesn't look quite as impressive when you go there because it's it's eleven stones spread out over a very large area, what makes it the, the largest. The stones are quite significant, and I think four of them are still upstanding most of them have, have collapsed over with time. It's one as well where there are a, a significant amount of, of sun rising based events link, linked with it. Unlike Kalanish, it's not really got any connections with the lunar calendars. It's definitely viewed as a calendar based on solar events. Um, and its position in the landscape is uh, central in a way that it has strong avenues looking around the general area with specific uh, age eastwards for the sun there rising the avenues have been explored by various uh, scientists over time. There was one particular report that, that showed that the way east, it was clearly positioned that way to allow it to, to mark major solar events around the, the circle. Interestingly on that one, with a lot of stone hinges and things, there are uh, either a central stone in the middle or one on the outside that allows it to, to function as a calendar. This one, it seems to be at the very edge of the stone circle. Um, and it is the largest of the circle stones and allows it to mark um, 
the event, and it's believed it's possible the twelfth one may have actually lay behind it, um, but it's very much off to the centre and currently at the back. So, and and that one would have marked one of uh, would have been likely used as a point for celebration and marking the, the event of the winter solstice. Um, their tangible links with winter and summer solstice are a lot more now down to speculation based off of looking at the alignment stones currently. How much they've moved over time is also a kind of factor to bring into account when you're looking at various stone circles. Um, there are reports that that one may originally have been 18 stones, although where that's quite come from seems to be more of a modern speculation. The uh, earlier accounts of the uh, pre-Victorian accounts of the stone circle has always depicted it as being 12 and nothing more, nothing, well, eventually less when one went for a wander. But it is believed to be one of the ones on the outlying sides of the field, which is no longer part of it, but is thought to be maybe the stone that had been there um, because it was just removed around the early Victorian era. Uh, as for the other six, whether they existed or not, is, is kind of debated. And it's something you do have to take into account. Callanish less so of the stones being moved other than the, the odd drunken Victorian, because they were largely submerged in peat more than halfway up. Um, and so their movement was fixed. Um, within a lot of the mainland ones, they're big boulders, they're not submerged in any way, and tractors and farmers over time where they've been inconvenient or in the way of, of hedges or any other kind of dividers that have moved them. I think it's still fairly confident to say they were significant in the winter solstice, they were being used as a, a centre point for gathering. The fact that when excavation, excavations have been done of them, they've found kind of uh, idols, bronze statues, um, various remnants of, of bones of animals and things around the centre shows it was a kind of gathering place for people to mark major events. I love that some drunken Victorians were responsible for moving the stone. Just great. Apparently, on it, I didn't see it when I was there, but apparently it cracked in half as it fell, and it has since been concreted in place. So it's probably why no later historian has decided to try and put it back where it may have originally been. Yeah, I found that quite a fun one as well, that nowadays, and a lot of them, not so much in Scotland, but around Stonehenge and a lot of the more kind of famous ones, there are certain protections in place, like Stonehenge you can't even go up to unless it's certain days of the year because they're, they're viewed as fragile. Debatable, they're big stones. But uh, <laughs> it's clear they can break from the fact of a, a drunken Victorian leaning against it has managed to snap it in two. So. Millions and millions of years can pass and society can change so much, but one thing will always remain the same. Drunken Scotsmen wrecking absolute havoc. I thought it was really interesting. I've always found it interesting how um, like things get added over time. Like Stonehenge as well, you were saying how things at Kalanish have been added. Um, there's things at Stonehenge that like it was constantly being developed over thousands of years and I just I want to know why it was such a work in progress. Was it because you know the society was changing and things were becoming more or less important to them? Were they having new ideas? What was going through these people's heads? I think elements of Kalanesh, it seems like from what I've seen, it, pinpoint the exact dates is quite hard because the, you can't carbon date a rock really. So you, you can't pinpoint exactly when it was there, but based off of kind of the, what's seen around the rest of the area and kind of disturbances and things that can be found under the stones and things, for example, 
um, it looks like it was kind of developed over a kind of two and a half thousand year period to involve different things. And it's possibly why there are as many different, like the main northern avenue, the circle, the large standing stone in the middle, the cairn underneath, the three other uh, avenues that developed off of it. Um, it could be why it's now such an extensive thing. And the fact that it is in such a prominent place in Lewis means that it's unlikely to have faded into obscurity quite as quickly as a lot of the other kind of surrounding ones will have been on mainland Scotland that are kind of alleys and flatter areas. I passed one when I was um, walking, it was quite a long, it was a couple of days walk I was on and I was just walking in the kind of lowland Scotland uh, amongst the hills there and as I was going down one uh, I passed a bit and it looked like there were some raised bumps and stuff among the heather and a little look around and it was it was a stone circle. It was quite a small one for the side, and I think probably about 10 metres across or so, um, with boulders kind of just about yay big. But um, things like that, they, they fade into obscurity, they don't change as much, and so we have these kind of set ones around a lot of lowland Scotland, but within things like Callanish, that will remain a focal point for a long time, and so people will add and change things, just as we hadn't changed since today. The, the church from 600 years ago will look nothing like it does it's fantastic to think about people and societies using something for two and a half thousand years you know we update our phones every few years and you look back two thousand years from now and it was a completely different civilization society i think it's wonderful to think about people generation after generation continuing to use and to add to those stone circles even when they're not using the pre-existing ones directly, um, I think it's really interesting when people actually mimic these sorts of things. For example, I know that the Victorians were absolutely entranced by this kind of romanticism idea um, behind stone circles and druidry um, and magic, and they created a lot of their own stone circles um, to use. A lot of people do pinpoint the Victorians as the main ones who went around kind of investigating these stone circles. and doing the excavations, and they were for a lot of them, like um, Kalanish and stuff, they were the ones that dug away the metres of peak to expose the kind of full might of it. But um, uh, I remember listening to a programme where they were talking about uh, excavations at Stonehenge, and they'd done one, and they'd found a bottle of wine that was thought to have been put there in excavations done by the Romans. It had been a huge source of interest for people for about 2,000 years. I also find it so fascinating that even though they're so far apart geographically, like even thinking Stonehenge and then coming up to Scotland, that there are very similar stone circles in both locations. And even looking at age-wise, it's not it's not like it would have been built by the same people because they wouldn't have been able to travel that far. Um, it's just fascinating how that became such a tradition all across the UK and even overseas. Especially down in England, not so much Stonehenge itself because it has very distinctive qualities which make it kind of different to most Stonehenge, uh, stone uh, circles and such like, but um, for things like uh, the one, there's a lot of them in Cumbria, so the, the kind of north of England, that are very similar to most of kind of mainland Scotland's ones. Again, kind of Kalanish and um, up in Orkney as well, they differ a bit, they become a lot more kind of sharp, angular and, and very high. But it is very interesting how they all just thought these massive giant stones arranged in a certain way will use this as a calendar. Not the most convenient way about it, but kind of shows the kind of importance of the community and the fact that it maybe had some kind of religious value behind it as well. And that it's not the easiest way to measure the season. 
So going back to the winter solstice, I found some odd and compelling plant lore that ties in some of our modern traditions with their ancient roots. We all recognize red and green as holiday colors, but this festive color scheme may in large part be inspired by the use of holly. Holly and plants like mistletoe have been a widely recognized part of our winter festivals for centuries. This may have begun in the British Isles when the Romans brought their Saturnalia celebrations along with the decorative use of holly to the island around the first century CE. There is a fantastic tale of winter woe and holly told in the 14th century poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight which describes the struggle between King Arthur's knight Gawain, whose name means Hawk of May, and the fearsome holly-clad green knight. But this poem is only one version of a tale that is likely much, much older and has its roots in pagan and early Christian beliefs. The Holly King and the Oak King do battle for dominion over the natural world twice a year. On the summer solstice, the Holly King is victorious, so he reigns as the nights grow longer, the world darker, until the winter solstice when they fight again, and this time the Oak King is victorious and wins the right to rule the lengthening days until summer. Holly also played an important part in the hunting of the wren, a winter tradition practiced all over the British Isles, including Scotland, and particularly in Wales and on the Isle of Man. It takes place either on winter solstice, or boxing slash St. Stephen's Day, or even on Twelfth Night. The wren was known as the King of Birds, and its name in Welsh I believe translates roughly to king. It would have been captured or even killed and displayed on a holly-decked pole, beer, or wren house. And we can put a link, there's a wonderful example of one of these still in a museum. And during this, a procession of young men and boys would go through the town or surrounding country, dancing, playing music, and collecting money and goods for the following celebration. There are many theories on the origin of the hunt, ranging from revenge against a shape-shifting enchantress, to seeing its kingly death as an echo of the Holly King's defeat, or even as a symbolically divine sacrifice to revitalize the sleeping winter land. And I believe Rebecca is going to talk more about rebirth later as well. Holly's blood red berries were always seen as a reminder of vitality and the return of new life. So much so that Scottish tradition tells us that the winter crone, and I apologize if I mispronounce this, the Kylich, defeated by the oncoming spring, threw her staff down at the foot of a holly tree 
and legend tells us that is why no grass will grow beneath them. Another vegetative symbol of hope and returning light is the Yule log, or often Yule stump. The Druids are thought to have begun the burning of a large log or tree stump in the British Isles during the 12 days of the Solstice Festival. So maintaining light throughout the darkest time of the year and throughout the longest night. They would also cut mistletoe from their sacred oak tree groves and give it as a blessing during the solstice time. And it was believed to have been a symbol of luck and fertility, and this is possibly the root of a tradition that's still clinging to our winter celebrations, that of kissing under the mistletoe. I think it's so cool how, like, just how many traditions have stuck around, even till today. Like, even though they've kind of changed and we don't associate them with them anymore, but it's just so cool that they're still here and they survived. Absolutely. And so many that have been brought from overseas as well, especially the Yule Log. That's something that's come in, um, even across Europe, it's been observed um, and it's come to the UK. Most of these seem to be a product of different peoples that settled in the British Isles and all of the cultural exchange that happened over the centuries. So you get this amalgamation of traditions all layered together. I like the, the, the thing you said there about the, the dead red. I was quite <laughs> an interesting one. And it just made me think of, I don't know if you've seen them, the Victorian um, Christmas cards with the dead robins on. I was wondering if there was any link between any of that or whether it was just strange that we decided to like prepare the parts at Christmas time. Yeah, I don't know specifically about the robin. Um, again, I know the wren was seen as a divine bird since it's one of the few that sings in the dead of winter. But robins too, you see them active throughout the winter as well, and especially in spring. So maybe it's a reminder of the cycle of life and death and also of sacrifice and rebirth as well. It does seem a bit grim for a Christmas card though, huh? Definitely! I'll be keeping an eye out for some of those cards. I've actually not seen any myself, but I'll, now that I know about it, I think I'm going to start seeing it everywhere. They must have just been tapping into some like primal intuition. They were like, we must have dead birds and Christmas. <laughs> well, these days the robins are always live. On, on the cards. There's so many Christmas cards that Robin's become a staple of Christmas. But a live one, thankfully, these days. <laughs> no animal cruelty here. Can I just say that I love um, the association between the Oak King and the Holly King and Gawain and the Green Knight because, like, I stand both of them. <laughs> They're both great. And I love that they, like, intertwine in that way. Oh, absolutely. I'm very excited. Uh, I think it got postponed, but there's a new independent film called The Green Knight from A24 Films. Should be a good update uh, from the really cheesy 1980s Sword of the Valiant with Sean Connery. Um, very sparkly, kind of great, kind of terrible, worth checking out. But the new one's supposed to come out next year, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to be going into the idea of rebirth and reincarnation with regards to the winter solstice. 
so we've already covered that the winter solstice is the shortest day of the year and it's known as midwinter. If you're from Scotland, you'll know that that is a big old lie and that December winter is just getting started for us, but that's besides the point. Um, winter solstice is the darkest day of the year and while the word mid might not apply to the temperature or the weather, especially here, um, it certainly applies to the sun's activity and the light. The shortest day of the year is the turning point of the year and the one that would have meant a lot to our agricultural ancestors. In the past, people were much more reliant on the land, both for their food and their economy, so the winter would be met with a lot of anxiety, the ground was infertile, people were sad and it was dark and they didn't have things like Netflix to entertain them. Um, so the day that the sun starts to come back is would have been greatly anticipated as it would have been hope in the middle of a very dark and dismal time. Um, and it would also represent the thawing of the land and the hope of a new agricultural agricultural year um, that would bring food and also prosperity to them. Death is quite tightly tied to the winter, not only in terms of the natural world seemingly dying, um, but also around this time livestock would be slaughtered so that they wouldn't need to be fed over the winter and waste food that could be used for the people. Um, and it would also give a surplus of meat um, to be consumed over the cold winter months. To kind of summarise, the winter solstice basically represents the death and rebirth of the sun and the natural world along with it. I quite like this quote from Dr. Diane Pulaski, which summarises the idea of death and rebirth as loss alchemically transmutes to potential gain. Grief turns to gratitude. Emptiness provides fertile space for implantation of creativity seeds. And as a new year light dawns, limitations are cast off, self-illumination is birthed, and the world is reborn. It's kind of like the idea of seeds chilling out under the ground, reflecting on life and becoming, like, you know, enlightened and then rising up um, into this new spring as new seeds, um, new plants, which is kind of what we associate with winter almost. I guess not hugely consciously, but I think winter is definitely seen as more of a time for kind of turning inwards, where people kind of work on themselves and spend time with their families, um, as opposed to kind of going out and having adventures and things. So, how does this all tie in with resurrection mythology? Um, resurrection mythology is rife among cultures and religions of the world, just to name a few. The Phoenix, Persephone, Odin, uh, Tammuz, Quetzalcoatl and of course Jesus Christ um, are all characters that undergo some kind of reincarnation. Um, even in belief systems that don't necessarily believe in reincarnation, there is the promise of eternal life, like in Christianity. Um, it seems to be a staple in how people coped with the idea of death and probably has something to do with the relationship they had with the natural world around them. The moon, the seasons and the sun all move in cycles of death and rebirth. Therefore, deities associated with vegetation typically have resurrection stories behind them and these tales often involve pain and a moral lesson where the character is profoundly changed after their encounter with death. Framing winter is a time of quiet contemplation where you change and become new like bulbs in the earth. And this is just a side note, totally off script, but I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that um, we always set New Year's resolutions in New Year, which is in winter. It's like a time where we all decide that we're going to become new and changed and then don't. So this leads us to our main girl, um, the Gallic Queen of Winter and the mother of basically everything in Scottish mythology, um, the crone goddess, the Calic or Bera. 
She's normally described as very tall, sometimes a giantess, with white hair and blue skin um, and brown or rust-coloured teeth. Sometimes she has one eye. She's a bit scary looking, but I suppose if we all spent our time in Scottish winter, we'd probably look the same, so I'll not hold that against her. The longest night of the year, the winter solstice, is marked by the end of her reign as the Queen of Winter, which kind of ties into what Lindley was saying about um, the end of the reign of the Holly King uh, at the winter solstice. Uh, she would then visit the Well of Youth, drink from it and grow stronger each day leading up to the summer solstice where then the she would become the Queen of Winter again. Sometimes she's associated with Bridget, um, who is the goddess of fertility and fire and she, her kind of main time is around Imolk, which is in February, which is kind of the first buddings of spring. They're considered two sides of the same coin and the crone becomes the maiden, which is again rebirth. The Calic has also been associated with the grain harvest. The last sheaf of crop was sometimes identified with her and played a role in the success of next year's crop. So again, it's no surprise that she is in her crone state in the winter when the land is barren and then is rejuvenated at the time when the seeds should be sown. So just to round things off with regards to regeneration and the Calic um, and the winter solstice, I found this quote from Folklore thursday which talks about how she relates to this understanding of the natural world compared with her male mythological counterparts um it says that the female represented the cosmos principle eternal and cyclical while the male construct represented linear human history time marked by the male hero's historical achievements what followed was a mythology split with human historical myths now being male dominated while the divine female trope was centered around topographical myths so to kind of round that up, the winter solstice is the turning point in the year. Um, it represents the glorious messianic return of the natural world, um, which is very much tied to the feminine um, and the Calic. And I think we should all raise a wee toast to the Calic on Midwinter's Day so she treats us nicely in the next agricultural year. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. <laughs> yeah, I really liked the idea of the feminine aspects of the story being cyclical and how that ties into the natural passing of time in the world. Um, in contrast with the idea of the male linear historical passing of time, I really enjoyed that uh, connection. I don't think I've heard that before. segment I want to look a little bit more at the origins of some of the stories that we covered today. Um, Lindley actually yours covered some of it and Rebecca yours covered the other half um, but going further back in time looking at the Feast of Yule uh, which is where we get Yule with the current spelling of Y-U-L-E which was previously J two U's an actual double U followed by an L. So the Feast of Yule um, is a Scandinavian solstice celebration and um, and back then, um, it honoured the god of sunlight, Freyr, uh, who is believed to ride across the sky on a golden boar, which is why at the Feast of Yule they would serve a boar's head, um, and that would be the main kind of centrepiece of the meal. Uh, but the image of somebody riding across the sky on a golden boar, um, <laughs> kind of like a very strange Santa, <laughs> um, but very different meaning. Um, they back then they believed a lot in the power of sunlight and light and heat which is why at the meal they would also have they would light a bonfire 
um, again to celebrate the heat and the light of the returning sun. And the Yule log uh, was then a tree. You would take a whole tree and you would, the kindle for burning that tree is the previous year's Yule log. So that's how they would originally um, begin the festival and the feast. Um, and what they observed and they honoured the gods. Um, it was the Scandinavian god Thor um, that they honoured with the Yule log. And moving to when that tradition transitioned into what is now, um, I say now, in slightly more present day, um, England, Germany and France, they actually have the symbolic meaning of the Yule log and the ash from the Yule log that was taken um, be used to fertilise the land and it would be a symbol of strength, um, but also a kind of way to celebrate the coming year um, and use it to fertilise crops that they hoped would grow um, and be very profitable for them or would bring them lots of food and sustenance. In fact, in France, they believed that if they kept the ashes, um, because it would burn the whole log, so in some traditions they would leave parts of the log for next year's kindling, um, but in France and England and parts of Germany, they would just leave it as ash. So they would burn it to the very end, just leave the ash, and they would keep it either as a token or they would actually, in France, store it under their bed as a way to ward off against thunder and lightning, uh, of all things, um, but also disease. They believed that it would keep them strong through the winter. I was just going to say about, in France, how they, they decided that by keeping it under the bed would fend uh, off kind of like thunder and lightning. I wonder if they, they knew at the time they were doing it from the original link with kind of Thor and things or whether that was something that was just kind of passed down unknowingly. It's quite an interesting idea that, that even unknowingly you could be taking on the customs of other kind of nations that had symbolic meanings and then it being something very different to you. I do wonder that too. Um, it's a fascinating idea of how much it's spread, even as different traditions and how it's warped into different things. Um, but that will definitely be one I think I'll research. Maybe we'll, in a future episode, um, discuss how some of those traditions from past days actually have become new traditions and cartoon characters and comic characters. I was also interested in the part about Freyr and the boar and also the serving of a boar's head as a centerpiece. I love folk music and uh, Christmas music, so I've come across the Boar's Head Carol, but I had no idea where it came from, so it's nice to put that in context as well. Definitely, there is that link. Um, I wonder as well if there's a link with the pig's head and the apple um, in slightly more present day. We don't find many boars roaming around, but there's uh, plenty of farm animals, that, especially pigs, that in the UK would be easier to get hold of. I think to the Celts, I'm not sure about up in Scotland, um, like whether it was original thing or if it was Celts as a whole um, but I know that to them the boar was uh, like a sacred importing beast because it was really strong and it was like you know if you could overcome the boar then you were like super strong man um, there's a couple of Arthurian tales where they hunt a boar um, and it's like the kind of pinnacle of strength of manhood if you can if you can kill the boar then you're the man <laughs> what a coming of age just <laughs> sweet 16 can you overcome the boar <laughs> i think for the kills as well they had the carnex as well didn't they that had the, the large instrument with the boar's head at the, the front so it really did have quite a lot of 
symbolism to them. And I think in France as well, a bit later in France, um, this became a very kind of explicit kind of thing of, of strength and power, I think even towards the kind of Norman time. Things that around that kind of a whole section where the, also the Yule log seems to have proliferated itself, that the concept of a boar being a kind of image of power is, is also really powerful. Which, can I just add a fun fact? Boars are a matriarchy. Make of that what you will. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Well, it that's all the ties in. <laughs> I wanted to also look at how winter solstice is celebrated in other parts of the world as well, because nothing really was coming through from the UK in terms of horror stories. And as we know, winter solstice is the longest night of the year. Um, and there's a lot of darkness that would normally be associated with things like Halloween. Um, and there are some traditions in other cultures. Um, there's Shaba Yalda, which is an Iranian festival, which is celebrated on the night of the solstice. Um, and it's on this day, it was noted that it was the sun was being salvaged by, from the claws of evil uh, and the evil being the darkness. And they believe that with the sun rising the next morning, it gradually spreading its rays. Uh, symbolizes a triumph of good over evil and it's the victory of light over darkness so the celebration itself many people would get together with families and stay up late to observe um, the rising of the sun um, but would also being together in a community was intended to protect people from evil um, and the evil forces that roamed during the night so very similar to halloween that we actually celebrate certainly in the uk um, at the end of october um, this is actually celebrated in December and it's some the, a lot of the religious aspects of it have left um, but in, even now it is noted that people would still stay up late and there's that cultural presence in present day so this Shabi Alda initially started back in the 10th century um, and it was a lot to do with light to dark and dark to light and they had it was a lot very powerful moment both of those occasions um, with it also being the darkest night in the end of the summer, uh, when people were together for so long to pass the time, they would share the remaining fruits of the summer. So the final yield of the year. Um, so it'd be a lot of things like berries, um, certainly in that part of the world, and pomegranate, dried nuts, um, things like that to mark the occasion and make the night pass, hopefully as quickly as possible, um, to be saved from the evil spirits that would roam uh, and then the next morning, they're defeated uh, by the light. The claws of evil, that was such a brilliant phrasing. Yeah, I kind of love that. And I kind of love the context of the other types of winter solstice celebrations, too. And I like that it, it added in that while the winter solstice here is seen as something that you're kind of celebrating something from the past that kind of died away, and like, it's not widely celebrated in culture, it's kind of seen as kind of modern day Jews and pagans and things. Um, but there it's still, it's, it's a relevant cultural thing that came along a bit, quite a bit later than ours did in the 10th century. And it, it's something that's still seen as like a kind of a cultural thing that's relevant and people do celebrate it as a family. And I like that it had the context there of, of still being a kind of family event. It'd be quite nice if we did things like that as a, as a family for the solstice or the, the equinox or various things. Come on, child, we're going to the stone circle at four o'clock in the morning, whether you like it or not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just, I like the idea of it being part of a, a celebration because it, unlike a lot of the celebrations nowadays that are done like Christmas and Easter and uh, Halloween things, well, less so Halloween because that does date back, but Christmas and Easter, that 
have become very kind of Christian-based celebrations, but people celebrate it anyway because they want to have a chance to have a drink and get presents uh, or chocolate. But the idea of it being something that's actually representative to, to important things within the country's operation. So, like, farming is still huge because it's how we get our food and things. And the fact of it being, like, when the season kind of stops, things aren't able to grow, there being a celebration at that point is quite that's something I quite like the idea of. And then the, the kind of the equinox as well, the, the spring one of this being when planting starts, it's where life, fresh life's coming. I think that makes a nice kind of a wholesome celebration that is irrelevant of kind of faith or background in that way and that it's, it's about the land. I'm just fascinated by how much focus there is on the darkness of it. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas in other cultures, there's they focus on slightly different aspects of what comes after, whereas with this, they're almost fearing it coming. So they they fear winter solstice coming, and there's a lot of kind of they need the protection of others, whereas we don't really have that across here. I suppose like it is like it's the middle of the winter, um, like it's it's midwinter. The worst is yet to come. While I suppose we're quite optimistic and. Being like, oh yeah, the days are getting longer, woohoo! But like, January still comes. Yeah, I wonder why here it's, it doesn't seem to have ever been viewed as like a hugely you know, sinister event. And the, the, the Celtic things, they still celebrated it. It was still seen as like even they had the feasts and all such. Like, it doesn't, we don't know because we weren't there, but it does seem from what people have said that it, it was seen as less of a kind of a turning of evil thing. And though the Calic is kind of described as this kind of creature that has people within her grasps and it makes everything cold and makes the land barren and everything. I wouldn't say she's necessarily always depicted as an evil character, but more as just a kind of force itself. And I, I find it interesting that they had this kind of darker image of it. I was going to say even that, for example, when you talked about David with stone circles, that's a very outdoor in the open thing. Whereas with this, they're all inside, they're indoors, they're away from nature, away from everything whereas in other cultures especially here and in europe we're trying to reconnect with nature and arguably they have the better idea given the temperatures so. Thank you very much for listening to the pilot episode of the Folklore Scotland podcast. We will hopefully be back in two weeks' time with a new episode. And if you are in need of some more folklore content, you can head over to our website at www.folklorescotland.com. Thank you for listening. The Folklore Scotland podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that seeks to tell the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you're keen to become a voluntary contributor, please reach out to info at folklorescotland.com. All of our social media channels and our website can be found in the show notes along with a complete source list for today's topics. Your hosts this week were Rebecca, David, Mila and Lindley and many thanks to Rasheen for her research work. Many thanks also to Lindley for recording our intro and interlude music and creating this week's artwork. You can find her website in the show notes as well.